The Miracle on 34th Street, Home Alone, The Grinch, It's a Wonderful Life, Christmas classics we love to watch each year. Join us in discovering how they reveal truths about Christian faith. I hear bells. Does anyone else hear bells? I'm not hearing things. Hey, we are completing uh, this series, Christmas Classics, today. And what we've done in this series is we have uh, taken a look at some Christmas classic movies uh, that sort of make us feel like it's Christmas time, uh, your favorites. And today we're looking at uh, probably some people's most favorite, maybe, is a 1946 classic, It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, I don't know if you are familiar with Jimmy Stewart, one of my favorite old-time actors. Donna Reed, uh, they play uh, the lead roles in this movie, uh, where Stewart's, uh, he's George Bailey, and uh, he's living in Bedford Falls, uh, and wherever that's at, uh, there's snow there, anyway. Uh, but his father dies, and he had hopes to... Uh, George had hopes to travel the world, but when his father dies, he's forced uh, to take care of the family business, Bailey Savings and Loan. And so uh, his, his uh, uh, plans are dramatically changed, what he was going to do with his, with his life. But things don't go as planned. His brother is called up to war, and he goes off to war, and he spends quite a bit of time there. He actually becomes a war hero and saving a lot of men. And George's life is consumed with carrying the weight of this uh, with this bank business, the family bank business, and he's planning on getting married to Mary, um, but uh, he saves up all this money so they can have this exotic honeymoon, but there's a run on the bank, and people come in for all their monies, and he ends up having to give his money away for their honeymoon to, to satisfy people's demands for their money from the bank, and then on top of that, on Christmas Eve, one of their family friends uh, loses $8,000, and that, that complicates the problems. And so uh, George decides that uh, he would be better off that he would never have been born. And he goes uh, down to the bar and he begins to drink. And he, he walks out onto this bridge where he's going to take his life. And, uh, and he's just praying up to God. And that's when God sends Clarence, who's a second-class angel. And so if you've seen the movie, you remember that Clarence comes down and don't get your theology from movies about angels and things, you know. I mean, it's just a movie, all right? Uh, so uh, he, he, he's, he's and his prayer is answered to see what his life would have been like without him being born. And so we're going to pick up uh, in this movie one of the closing scenes. It's a very powerful scene. If you've never seen the movie, you ought to rent it and watch it. Are you sure this is Bailey Park? No, I'm not sure of anything anymore. All I know is this should be Bailey Park. But where are the houses? You went here to build them. Your brother, Harry Bailey, broke through the ice and was drowned at the age of nine. That's a lie. Harry Bailey went to war. He got the Congressional Medal of Honor. He saved the lives of every man on that transport. Every man on that transport died. Harry wasn't there to save them because you weren't there to save Harry. You see, George, you really had a wonderful life. Don't you see what a mistake it would be to throw it away? Clarence, 
Yes, George? Where's Mary? Oh, well, I, I, I can't... Uh... I don't know how you know these things, but tell me, where is she? I'm if you not... know where she is, tell me where my wife is. I'm not supposed to tell. Please, Clarence, tell me where she is. You're not going to like it, George. Where is she? She's an old maid. She never married. Where is Mary? Where is she? she... Where is she? She's just about to close up the library! There must be some easier way for me to get my wings. Poor Clarence. Yeah, he had a tough day at the office, didn't he? So George realizes that his one life did make a big difference in other people's lives. And the ripple effect of one person's life in another person's life is really unknown to us until it all wraps up. And we find out the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey used to say. We find out what, what hasn't been told to us. We don't understand and so Clarence says to him, strange, isn't it? Each man's life touches so many other lives, and when he isn't around, he leaves an awful hole, doesn't he? And it's true. Like, I know some of us have had some bad days. Maybe you've gone through a really difficult time even right now, like family's in chaos or, you know, finances are in chaos or you're just very unsettled in your own heart. There, there are times where we feel like we're not making a difference in anyone's life. But if we have committed ourselves to following Jesus, we will, have, we will be a difference maker. We will have an impact. We don't know the measured effect by that. Again, it's hard for us to see it. But having all of us received words from other people that they said casually and they stuck in our heart, they, they encouraged us to take another step forward or gave us some wisdom in a moment. Um, uh, so... There's a statement that's true about all of us that I, I want to kind of hone in on in today's message, um, that, that there's the, the life of Jesus, his life, has impacted the world more than any other life. And if he had not been born, the world would be a much, much darker place than it is. But it wasn't just his birth that was a difference maker, was it? Because Jesus had to make a decision multiple times to surrender his will to the Father's will. You remember at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, he's tempted in the desert for 40 days by Satan. And he doesn't succumb to the temptation. He, kept, he keeps following the Father's will. And then on the night of his betrayal, the night of his crucifixion, he's, he, he's wrestling with obeying the Father's will. He doesn't want to go to the cross. What human would, right? But he, he commits his will to the Father's will. So here's what I'm trying to say. A life surrendered to the Father in heaven makes all the difference in the world. It wasn't just his birth. Jesus was a human just like us. Same trials, same difficulties, same challenges. But he, he commits his will to the Father's will. His life he hands to the Father. And that makes all the difference in the world. The passage we're going to look at today is not typically thought of to be a Christmas passage or a nativity passage, but it certainly is one, and it's, it's in the book of Revelation. Now, the book of Revelation is often thought about uh, in, like, future events, but quite honestly, most of Revelation is historic. Uh, John, uh, who received the revelation from Jesus Christ, is writing about events that surround his time. There are some future things, like the second return of Jesus, and and, and some of that, but, but most of what he writes about are current events or recently uh, events that have happened recently. And the passage we're going to dive into today in Revelation chapter 12 
is really a great summary passage of the entire Bible that I hope to explain to you. And so uh, we're going to pick up uh, the difference that Jesus made and Satan's attempts to stop this one life from coming to pass. Reading from Revelation 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with sun, with moon under her feet, and a crown of twelve stars on her head. She was pregnant and cried out in pain as she was about to give birth. Then another sign appeared in heaven, an enormous red dragon with seven heads and ten horns and seven crowns on its head. Its tail swept a third of the stars out of the sky and flung them to earth. The dragon stood in front of the woman who was about to give birth so that it might devour her child the moment he was born. Uh, She gave birth to a son, a male child, who will rule all nations with an iron scepter. Her child was snatched up to God and to his throne. The woman fled into the wilderness to a place prepared for her by God where she might be taken care of for 1,260 days. Then war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was not strong enough, and they lost their place in heaven. The great dragon was hurled down. The ancient serpent called the devil or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. This is God's word today. This is his revelation that we're going to try to unpack and apply to our lives because there's a lot to be said here. Now, in this passage, the woman uh, represents Israel. Uh, She has the 12 uh, stars above her head, which is representative of the 12 tribes of Israel. So uh, she's bringing forth uh, a child who would rule the earth, right? And that's pointing to Jesus, the child. And so uh, we have Israel, as we know in history, Israel does bring forth the Messiah, Jesus Christ, and Satan is pursuing to try and kill that child like we talked about last week with Herod. But uh, uh, so the dragon here is Satan, uh, as he, it's identified in the text. But what I want us to, I want some caution. This just isn't about one event. Uh, this isn't just about uh, Bethlehem and Herod and that. This is about a cosmic war that takes place from the very beginning. Uh, if you were to create a nativity scene like this, you would be biblically accurate. There's a dragon, if you notice, in this picture. And the dragon is trying to chomp down on the little Christ child. But this isn't, this isn't the dragon. This isn't Satan's first attempt to destroy the messianic line. Because you see, in the very beginning of the Bible, when we're in the garden, Adam and Eve, they, are, they succumb to the temptation uh, of, uh, uh, of the serpent, right? Which is representative of, of uh, the devil. And, uh, and then there's a judgment that takes place. So the Lord comes in and he pronounces judgment on everyone uh, who's, who, who's dis- disobeyed. And, and, and so certainly, uh, Satan is, is going to be judged in that moment. Now, uh, if you go back to Genesis 3, 14 and 15, you'll read about uh, what we call uh, the first telling of the gospel. So what I mean by that is this. The Lord says to the serpent, says, you will strike the heel of the seed of a woman, but the seed of the woman will crush your head. So right in that moment, Satan knows his greatest enemy is going to be the seed of a woman. And so he begins to pursue what he thinks will be his, uh, his, uh, uh, the one that will take him out. And so Adam and Eve have children, right? And the first child they have is Cain, and Cain's name means striker. 
Eve named him Stryker because she thought the seed, her, her child, would crush the head of Satan. Uh, but what does Satan do? He conspires uh, uh, to uh, cause some conflict, right, between uh, Cain and his brother Abel. Now, Eve had another child, this Abel child, and his name means useless or not necessary because we've got Stryker. Why do we need another child? You see, this is the way that the, the, she's thinking through this. But Cain does strike somebody, but it's not Satan. It's, it's who? It's Abel, right? Takes out Abel. And so uh, Adam and Eve have another child, and they name that child Seth, which means substitute, because we lost one that was supposed to get the job done. So, we're ha- so anyway, you, you get the picture. There's this, there's, there's this play, that, uh, or, or a chess match, if you will, or a, uh, an eternal struggle that takes place throughout the Old Testament where Satan is constantly trying to destroy that which is his greatest threat, and that's the promised Messiah. And so we read about um, Cain's descendants, and they multiply in the earth, and they're, they're full of all kinds of wickedness. And the whole earth becomes consumed with this wickedness except one family. And that one family's name is Noah, right? Noah, and Noah has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and they all get on the boat with all the animals, and they're spared. The water lifts them above the destruction, and they populate the earth. And through the descendants of Shem through the descendants of, uh, uh, of the Semitic people will come forth the Messiah. And so the Semitic groups of people would include the Hebrew people. And so from that Semitic group of people, the descendants of Shem, we have Abraham. And Abraham has a promised son, and his name is Isaac, which means laughter. All right, somebody bring some more coffee in and kick some chairs. Uh, listen, you got to pay attention, right? Uh, there's going to be a quiz afterwards. That's the only way you can get out of the building. Uh, just joking. Uh, so anyway, um, uh, Isaac, uh, he has two sons, remember? Uh, what are their names? Jacob and Esau, right? And so, so Satan's watching this play out, and he's trying to conspire these two brothers to take each other out because he knows Messiah's going to come through one of them, doesn't know exactly how or when it's going to happen. But, but what happens is they don't kill each other. They make up, if you recall the story. And Jacob goes off and has this big family, and uh, his favorite son is Joseph. Remember, he has the coat of many colors. And so Satan conspires his brothers, uh, incites them, tempts them to take out uh, the father's favorite son, Joseph. But Joseph is not through the line. The Messiah is not going to come through Joseph, right? Because if you know the story, Messiah is going to come through the, house, or the tribe of Judah, Right, And so anyway, uh, what happens is all these sons, they migrate with their families down to Egypt. Uh, there's 400 years of bondage, and then there, the exodus takes place, and Satan continues to try and destroy Israel. He tried through Pharaoh. He tries through idolatry. He tries to lead all of Israel away from God and through idolatry, so their whole tribe would be destroyed. He keeps working, and then he finds out that it's going to come through the, house, uh, through the tribe of Judah and the house of David. And so uh, Satan is trying to conspire King Saul to kill David, if you remember that. And so you see there's this constant struggle of, of God moves his chess pieces and Satan counteracts. He's trying to take out his greatest threat. The dragon's looking over the child constantly through history. He's trying to consume and devour his greatest enemy. Uh, well, what happens is uh, David does survive Saul, but David leaves his throne, and as we move on through history, there's another king that comes over Israel. His name is Ahab, and Ahab has a wicked mom, Adaliah. Adaliah is a piece of work now, and she's going to try to secure 
her son's throne, Ahab's throne, and so that means she's got to eliminate all the descendants of David. And so she does. She kills all the children, all the descendants of David, except there's this one, uh, one woman, one, one handmaiden, Joshua, and she spares Joash. She, she, and it comes down to this one child of the house of David through the, where the Messiah is going to come from. He survives. And so uh, we have this, like, where, this constant battle where the dragon is trying to destroy his greatest enemy, the Messiah. We could talk about Esther, uh, where all God's people were threatened by that edict, and if you know the story, you know that doesn't happen. But uh, we have this, this dramatic play, this eternal struggle play out throughout the Bible. It's a wonderful study. If you would ever like to examine that, I would be certainly glad to hand it to you. It's way more information than we can cover in, in one part of a sermon today. But uh, here's what I need, to, I need to emphasize. If there's nothing you remember from today, if you walk out going, I don't know what he talked about, remember this. Satan loses, God wins. Best commentary on the entire book of Revelation. We win. Christians win. It, it's, it, no matter what Satan throws at God's plans, he, he's defeated every time. Because what happens is God continues to raise up people that will follow him. And then even sometimes, like with David, they get it wrong. God still works with them. He doesn't give up on them. And each person who surrenders their will to God becomes part of that winner's circle, if you will, one of the victorious crowd. And so you have to understand, no matter what you're going through right now, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, you will win. I don't care what it is, what injustice has happened to you, what terrible events have conspired in your childhood or whatever, you win by surrendering your will to Christ. That's how we win. We're victorious in Christ. Eugene Peterson says this about the nativity story. He says, Our response to the nativity cannot be reduced to shutting the door against a wintry world, drinking hot chocolate, and singing carols. Rather, we are ready to walk out the door, as one psalmist put it, high praises of God in our throats and two-edged swords in our hands. I mean, this is a battle. If you've come here thinking that Christianity is just about, like, being morally good and teaching your kids morals, I hope that happens. But we're really coming together to be strengthened, to encourage one another, to challenge one another, to become better educated about our faith so that we can carry out the war where, we're, where we live and where we work and who we interact with. It's not that we're, we're trying to destroy them. We're fighting against evil. We're fighting against injustices. We're trying to bring the hope of the gospel. We're bringing light into dark places. And so... That's how we win, and that's how we bring a wonderful life into our own lives and the lives of others, is uh, understanding that all of us have purpose and meaning in Christ, and that's a challenge together. So as we surrender our will to the Creator, we become victorious. Jesus' life surrendered to the Father's will created the cosmic cure. The whole world was cast into chaos in the garden. And, and you're like, well, I have a hard time understanding that, but I know you'll get this. I don't have to explain this very much. But you know, when you go ballistic and nuclear on your family, when your anger just in, explodes, when your guilt is like driving you, or when your shame is driving you, or when your anger is driving you, and those nearest to you, they're experiencing like the problem, Right? That, that sin is just, just 
just keeps hammering on us. I don't have to tell you how one sin in our life can just so, so drive us to, 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 to desperation. Like, like it was for George in, in It's a Wonderful Life. I mean, there were problems and it, it drove him to, a, to where he was going to take his own life. He felt that, that despondent. And so, so here's what Jesus does. He comes and he creates a cure, not just for the cosmos, but for us as individuals. He's created the cure for a dysfunctional family. He's created the cure for someone who's struggling through addiction. He's created the cure for someone who's despondent and, and, and doesn't see any purpose in, in their existence. He's created the cure. Jesus creates the cure. And everyone who follows Jesus becomes part of that, uh, of that long parade of people who's bringing light into darkness, who's bringing cure to people who are you know, f- feeling the weight of sin. We're, we're involved in, in the greatest gift that has ever been given to the world, and that is Jesus and His church. And those who have followed in Jesus's, as Jesus' example of surrendering their will to the Father's will become part of this cure. So let me just highlight a couple of these. First, we'll start with Jesus. Jesus and His followers did more to elevate the status of women and children than any other person in history. Don't look to the feminist movement. Don't look to Playboy. They have not elevated women. Jesus and his teaching and his followers have elevated women. For example, Jesus chose a teenage girl to bring forth the Messiah. I mean, who would have thought that, right? You're going to trust the, 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 the salvation of the world in this one woman's hands, right? I mean, that's a big deal, right? And then uh, throughout the Gospel of Luke, there are multiple women that are, are, are carrying out, uh, uh, bringing supplies and money. Johanna is one of those. And, and, and Luke notes that, that these women are participants in, in, in the gospel movement beginning uh, with Jesus' ministry. And then um, at the foot of the cross, we have, uh, we have the women and John, right? So the women are witness to the death of Jesus on the cross. And then at his resurrection, the first to find out that he's resurrected are the women, so what I'm saying is that we see in the life of Jesus that he elevates women to a status that they are major players equal with the men uh, in, in advancing the gospel. And then the early church. The early church, see, in those first centuries, it was not uncommon for uh, a father to be displeased with their child. So maybe they wanted a boy and they, they received a girl. So they would, uh, sometimes they would take those children and just toss them in the woods or in the trash heap. In Ephesus, they'd just throw them on the dump and some uh, evil person might come along and try to raise that child to be some type of slave, some evil desires. But the early church, what they began to do is rescue those children. See, a Roman father could discard his children up to the age of eight years old. So at seven and a half years old, you disbehave, you might be like discarded. So, I mean, we have, this, we have this terrible structure that's commonplace in the Roman Empire, and it's changed by the church. It's changed by people who have surrendered their will to Jesus, and they begin rescuing those children. And that's why the early church was so full uh, of women, because oftentimes they were the ones discarded, but they were also the ones rescued by the church. And so, so we, we, we find that uh, throughout uh, the early century of the church, the first century of the church, there's this, there's this up, uplifting of women and children from just throwaway status to being equal at the foot of the cross. Uh, and even today, who is championing, championing uh, who, is, who is advocating for the rights of mothers and unborn children? 
It's the church. It's the church. We're the ones. It's the church. I mean, we've supported two crisis pregnancy centers in our area, one in Danville, one now in Martinsville. Uh, you, you raised over $1,200 this past baby bottle boomerang. Can't believe I got that out. Try saying that three times fast, not in church, but outside. Uh, anyway, just don't say Beetlejuice. All right, so anyway, there's this... <laughs> Another Christmas movie. All right, so I don't know how you'd work that one in. Well, we'll talk about it. But, but anyway, uh, what I'm saying is that there's this, uh, there is this uh, uh, movement in the church to rescue uh, mothers from experiencing the horrors of abortion and children from experiencing the horrors of genocide and murder. And it's the church who's stepping in. We're the ones who are championing the rights of, uh, of these often uh, people who experience great injustices. And then uh, the issue of slavery, while it is sad and true that some Christians have owned slaves, it was one Christian, William Wilberforce, who caused the movement to abolish slavery. He said, a private faith that does not act in the face of oppression is no faith at all. He understood that slavery was an awful thing. So this upper-class, aristocrat, white guy in the parliament of, the, uh, of Great Britain becomes the one who initiates uh, the actions to, to dismantle the, the empire of, uh, uh, of the slave trade. And then the United States follows that example, right? And so uh, it's Christians who are the ones who are abolishing these injustices. Like, like this man, William Wilberforce. If you never read a story... Um, get this book, Seven Great Men by Eric McTaxis. It is a great book, and it tells his story in there. All right, so uh, about hospitals. One of the byproducts of the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD was the establishment of hospitals. Uh, we read this uh, historical note by the historian Donald Schnook. He says, many hospitals can be traced to the period directly following the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, when the bishops of the church were instructed to go out into every cathedral city of Christendom and start a hospital. And so when Constantine legalized Christianity in Rome, it gave uh, the ability for the church to, to create funds to establish places of healing and refuge for the poor and the traveler. And so these are how these first hospitals started out. And, and it wasn't pagans who started hospitals, orphanages, or schools. It's Christians. That's the one who gets down. These are the people who get down and surrender their will to the Father's will and get something done for the injustices that are taking place in the world. The first uh, nursing school was started by a dedicated Christian named Florence Nightingale. If you've never read her story, you should read another book by Florence Nightingale, which is amazing. Uh, the Lady with the Lamp, right? Uh, in 1860, she establishes the, 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 the first school of nurses in London. And so uh, these events take place because people who follow Jesus continue to surrender their will to the Father, and they, they're difference makers. They, they're, they're bringing a wonderful life into a dark and dying world. James, James Kennedy, in his book, What If Jesus Had Never Been Born, says this, Like no other force in history, Christianity has elevated the standard of morality worldwide. If it wasn't for Christ and His church and His people and His Word, how dark this world would be. And where the Word is not, it is very dark. Uh, missionary William Carey goes from Great Britain and he goes to India. And when he gets there, he sees this terrible practice occurring among the Indian people called sati. And what that is, is when the husband dies, 
the wives are burned with the husband on his funeral pyre. So the husband dies, they build up the sticks and they lay his body on, they light it on fire. And as he's consumed, the wives that are existing that he has, wife or wives, they're tossed on there or they jump on there. And that was practiced for centuries in India. Why? Because they didn't have the gospel. Why? Because Hinduism is a dark, demonic religion that brings awfulness to a great many people. I've seen it with my own eyes. And so, so we have a very, you know, uh, glossed up version here in the United States, but it's nothing like the real deal in, in India. I, I can assure you of that. But anyway, so Carrie says, this is wrong. This isn't right. This shouldn't happen. And so they began to uh, change the hearts and the minds to the preaching of the gospel, these people who were trapped in darkness in a foreign land. If it wasn't for Christ and his church, that would still be going on today. Because there's terrible things like similar to that that are going on in places in the world today because the gospel has either left or not, not been preached well. So suffice to say that the world is completely different because of Jesus and his followers. We're the difference makers, you and I, because we've surrendered our will to the Father's will. So keep surrendering your will to the Father so others can obtain life. You might not think you have much to offer, but I'm telling you, all of us, have been created in the image of God, and we all have purpose, and we all have something to offer others when we surrender our will to the Father's will. And here's the truth that I found in life. It's just If you want to measure your love for God, let me start this way. If you want to, I love God, people say. I love God. I love Jesus. There's a measurement for your love, and it's measured by how you love others. How much we love God is measured by how much we love others. Show me someone who loves God dearly, and I'll show you someone who's surrendered their will to the Father's will, and they're, they're, they're making financial decisions to reflect the, their love for people and God. They're making time decisions. They're making decisions that, that show that they really are concerned with carrying out the mission of Christ to seek and save the lost. And so a surrendered life to the Father makes all the difference in the world. And so there are many of you who've chosen professions, right? Your doctors, your nurses, your educators, your uh, counselors, you, you work with the elderly, uh, you're in law enforcement, health professionals. And so there are many people that even because of their Christian faith choose an occupation where they can bring goodness and, and hope into someone's life. Uh, and so, uh, you know, where, wherever you're at, there's opportunities to make a difference. But there's, but, but there's also an opportunity right here every Sunday. The most important thing we do at Cornerstone is have church every Sunday. That's the most important thing that we do because out of this one event that takes place every week, unless there's some blizzard, uh, is, is introducing the gospel and explaining the gospel to people's lives because that's where people, that's where the heart changes. The, the change isn't in, in my words, the change is in the God, Holy Spirit's working in that. And he's changing people's hearts to make a difference, to make decisions in their life. Last week, you know, Nick gave his life to Christ. After, How does that happen? Because people are praying and people are serving and, and, and the gospel is being preached and the Holy Spirit's working through all of that to bring life change into people's life. And so, um, so here's some opportunities. You're like, well, I don't know where to begin. I'm going to tell you where to begin. I had somebody meet me at the door in the last service and said, hey, I want to help. We need next step counselors. We need people who will greet people at the door. We need people who work in children's ministry or nursery. We need people who work on our worship team or our media team. 
Oh, and we need people to help out with community service, uh, preparing meals for those who are shut in or going through bereavement and that type of thing. We have opportunities, and we strategically have a three-year strategy called Elevate, which means what we're trying to do is elevate the compassion of Christ out into our community and elevate the spiritual maturity of our believers here. And part of what's going on right here is I'm trying to educate all of us about the mission of Jesus, that, that you know, our love for God is measured by our love for others, and that when we surrender our will to Jesus, it's a difference maker into the people's uh, lives around us. And so um, there are many things that go on, like, like what we saw Scott and Frank standing up here explaining on that mission trip. You're a part of that. Every Friday, there uh, is a backpack program where meals are brought to uh, children who don't have food at home. And so because you give and because people pack those things up and drop them off at the school, Chatham Elementary School is, is impacted. It doesn't say cornerstone on it. We're not, trying to, we're not trying to brag about the church. We're just trying to lift up Jesus, right? That's what we're trying to do. Because if we lift up Jesus, everyone will be drawn to Him. And that's what we want people to see. We want people to see Jesus. And so um, we're sending off one missionary now. In a couple months, we're going to send off another missionary, Shelley. He grew up in this church. Many of you worked with him, encouraged him. He's worked at camp. You've supported him financially and prayed for him. What I'm trying to say is, you see, as we surrender our will to Jesus, it's having an effect on the world from, from little Chatham, this little church, all this impact. We can never understand the full impact of our obedience in this life. You can't. It's impossible. You might see a sliver of it. You might get a thank you or, hey, that was really cool on, on that, that one thing. But it will only be heaven that will reveal the full impact of our gifts and service to the Lord. I'm telling you, it's going to be a great day. I can't wait for it. Um, last point, nothing. I'm giving you a silver bullet here, right? Nothing can overcome a life surrendered to God. If you surrender your will to Jesus Christ, nothing will overcome you. Not some injustice you've experienced. Not some, some tragedy, some, some flood or, 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 or tornado. No act of evil brought against you. No, no cancer. Nothing can overcome a person who has surrendered their will to the Father. Over and over again, we see this in Scripture that God always causes His people to win as long as they keep following Him. Even when they make mistakes, they, they return, they come back. Didn't what, isn't that what I said at the beginning? The best commentary on Revelation is that we win. Do you understand? You should have a confident faith. You should never give up because even when you feel like shrinking back, your life is still making a difference. Just keep surrendering your will to the Father. It's not a one-time thing. I gave my life to Jesus at baptism where I raised my hand and said the prayer and I gave my life. Okay, great. But what did you do the next day? Because the next day, the same trials are right there, right? The selfishness is right there. The, the, the aggravation is right there. It's, all, it's, it's an everyday thing. Like I said last week, and I had you repeat it. I won't do it again this week, but I often wake up and I say to myself, it's not about me. It's not. It's about Jesus. And in Jesus, my life has meaning. And in Jesus, I'm making a difference. And in Jesus, there is this hope that, that I cannot be overcome. 1 John 4, 4 says this, You dear children are from God, you, <clears throat> and have overcome them, 
the, the assault on their faith, all right? Because the one who is greater, uh, because the one that, who is in you is greater than the one who is in the world. There is nothing more significant in your life than Jesus. There is no trial, no difficulty. There is no challenge that cannot be met by faith in Christ. None. I am, I am yeah, I, and I had a guy in the first service, he stood up and applauded. And he told me next week, he's going to make other people applaud. And he's an ex-Navy SEAL, and I know he can do it. All right. So anyway, aren't you glad you came? Very threatening. Come back next week. <laughs> How do we surrender our will? Well, it's, it's not rocket science, but it, it does take intentionality. Like, we've got to read our Bibles. So you, you miss a day. So what? Just pick up your Bible the next day. <clears throat> you got to pray. And so I have, a, I have a prayer I walk through, and, and, and I ask, I, I, I use the Lord's Prayer. <laughs> Jesus said, here's how to pray. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. Oh, wow. Right there in that prayer is an answer to our question of how do I, sur- so ask him to help you surrender your will. And then through the encouragement of the saints and through the challenges of people like me and others who are challenging us to serve. So there are other ways that God continues to orchestrate our will into his through the guidance of the Holy Spirit. We don't have time to get all that. But what I'm saying is that you in Christ are an overcomer and you will not fail. You can't. Just look at Revelation 12, 1 through 9. Satan tried for centuries and lost every time. God has a perfect track record, and those who follow him will cross the finish line victorious and will be embraced in their arms with a victorious crown. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for this opportunity uh, to preach this message, and I, I just pray that you would work in our spirit to take whatever next step we need to take in surrendering our will to you. So, Father, help us right now be uh, compliant to the guidance of your Spirit. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for joining us. You can find us on the web at cornerstonechatham.org.